Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys doing good today? You're looking good. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here as we continue our series, First Comes Love, Then Comes Baggage, where we're talking about the beauty and also the struggle of love and marriage. And none of us want marriage to be a struggle, but let's be real. There are always going to be issues when imperfect people say, I do. Not all of us can be Jenny Howard and just marry a perfect person who's easy to be married to. It's just the thing. She's out of town today, so this was my one Sunday where I could say that. But seriously, there are a lot of us sitting here who felt the sting of broken relationships. And unfortunately, we can't monetize heartbreak like Adele and Taylor Swift, so we just got to deal with it. And it's real in our lives and in our families. So often, some baggage that somebody else brought with them ends up doing damage to our hearts and becomes baggage that we carry with us into our stories forward. And we've seen it up close and personal in our own families, in the lives of our friends. And we live in a world where a whole lot of people look at that and say, why would I ever want to have anything to do with it? Like, we now have the lowest marriage rate in our nation's history because people say it seems so difficult, so impossible to get right. Maybe I should just avoid it. Like, why would I want to go skipping through that minefield? But here's the crazy thing. Even as our culture places less and less emphasis on marriage and the average age of getting married for the first time goes up and up, we still live in the middle of a society where most people want to get married. A recent poll by the Gallup organization suggested that 95% of American adults would like to be married, whether they are, were, or ever have been. Even those who think that marriage is basically an outdated institution. It was interesting. The survey said, is marriage dead? Yes. Would you like to be married someday? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And I think it's probably even more than 95%. It's just some people don't realize that's what they want. I know because I have these conversations. I had one last week with a close buddy of mine from college. He's like, Mike, I just don't think marriage is for me. It's just a sheet of paper. You know, I want someone who loves me for me and will do life with me, but I don't think I need to make it formal or anything like that. I told him, okay, never mind the fact that a $100 bill is also just a sheet of paper, but I bet you're not so hung up on paper you'd refuse that. Set that aside. What you're telling me is you want someone who will just love you for who you are and kind of just do life with you through thick and thin, for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, sickness, health, whatever. Yeah. For richer or for poorer. I hate you. I should have seen this coming. You're the worst. That's how that conversation went. You can call it whatever you want, but something inside us as human beings is hardwired to seek this out. We desperately want to be fully known and fully loved. We want somebody out there to say, hey, I know all of your fears and all of your faults and all of your failures, and I'm going to stay anyway. That's that's what our hearts cry out for as human beings, but it's not always easy. And I think we have this cultural idea that not only is marriage hard, but it's hard to find someone to marry. And that part isn't true at all. 
If you lower your standards far enough, you could get hitched by tonight. All right? All it takes in Iowa is 35 bucks and two friends or strangers willing to sign off on you doing something stupid. Anybody can get married. It's the staying married that's an issue. And part of that is finding somebody who really will make that commitment to walk by your side through better and worse and sickness and health and richer and poorer. But another part of it, like a critically important part of staying married, is understanding what marriage is really all about, what it's designed to be. And that's what we're going to dig into this morning, because here's the deal. The baggage we bring with us that can sabotage relationships isn't just bad things we've done. That's a piece of it. But some of the most destructive baggage we carry is bad ideas we've believed. We set our marriages up to struggle if we build them on the baggage of bad ideas. And so today we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to go back to the invention of marriage to ask God what it's designed to be. We're not going to ask me what it's designed to be. I know a few minutes ago I said I'm perfect and easy to be married to. That was a lie from a pastor in church on a Sunday. I'm sorry about it. And we're also not going to ask ourselves or our society. We've tried that. and We've ended up in a spot where the real divorce rate in America is about 40%. That's a whole lot of hurt and a whole lot of pain that touches a whole lot of lives. And so we're going to ask God what marriage is designed to be. If you have a Bible, you can crack it open to the book of Genesis. We're going to start in verse 18. And what we're going to discover is that from the very beginning, from the creation of the world, marriage has mattered a whole lot to God, which means marriage should matter a lot to us, whether we're married or not, because God invented the institution, and He didn't just invent marriage, He invested in marriage. And before we pick it up in verse 18, just a little bit of background, God has created everything, the sun and moon and stars and earth and seas, and He's made man, Adam, but He hasn't yet made woman. Because God is smart and he saves the best for last. I think that's kind of true, all right? But this is, this is what we read in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I know there's some women in here thinking, I'm with God on this one. It is not good for the man to be alone. Last time I left my husband home alone, the house was a disaster. He almost bought a motorcycle. The man cannot be left alone. That may be true. It's not exactly what God is getting at here. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. And what's fascinating here is that up to this point, every single thing God made, he calls good. He creates it. This is good, 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 good. And for the first time ever, he calls something not good. Adam is good, but Adam being alone is not good. But here's what I find super fascinating about that. Adam wasn't alone. Not really or not fully. Adam was connected to God. This is before the fall. Adam was personally and relationally connected to the Father in a deeper way than any human being has ever been since sin shattered the world and cut us off from God. And still, God looked at Adam and said, this guy's isolated. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for for uh, alone here is bad. That's how you pronounce it. Bad. God said, it's not good for the man to be bad. And you wonder, like, if God is that intimately connected to Adam, why in the world would he say it's not good for the man to be bad? Why did God think he was lonely? 
because God dreamed us up and designed us as human beings for two different kinds of relationships. A vertical relationship with Him, but also a horizontal relationship with other humans. We have not only the capacity, but the need for both of those connections. We cannot be fully human and fully alive unless we're relationally connected both to God and to the people around us. And it's really easy when we start thinking about marriage to decide, well, you know, maybe, maybe I don't need both of those connections and to hope like, oh man, if I can find the one, my soulmate, Mr. or Mrs. Right, then that person is going to complete me. And it's cute when Jerry Maguire says that to Renee Zellweger. He's like, you complete me. And she says, you had me. Uh, hello. It's cute. It's precious. It's also stupid. No human being is ever going to fill the God-shaped hole inside of you. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart that no other human can fill. And if you try to put a human in the God-shaped hole, you will crush the person you love, because you're going to put a weight on them they were never meant to carry, a weight that's so heavy only God can carry it. Here's the flip side of that. Even though no human can fill the God-shaped hole in your heart, God doesn't tend to fill the human-shaped hole in your heart, because He built it to be filled by other humans, plural, like more than one person is built to to fill this relational connection. You guys, we are designed with a deficit. It's not my favorite decision God ever made. I would love it if I was completely and totally whole and holy all on my own and I didn't need anybody else, but that's not how God made the world. We can't be whole or holy alone. We can't live into the fullness of our created, creative purpose outside of relationship with other people, which means loneliness is a real problem. Loneliness is the first problem in the history of the world. It's the only problem that predates sin. It's real, and it's an issue. And I think some bad idea baggage that Christians bring into marriage and and live with in life sometimes is this idea that if we're feeling lonely, something is wrong with us spiritually, that, that we're doing it wrong. If we're married and we're feeling like, man, I don't like being alone and lonely, or if we're unmarried and feel like, I don't like being alone and lonely, or if we're married and we feel lonely in our marriages, we tend to beat ourselves up. We're like, man, Jesus is enough. Jesus is supposed to be enough. If I was just doing this right, if I was leaning harder into Jesus, then I wouldn't be alone. Stop it. Let me speak some truth to you this morning. Like, you are built for connection, not just vertically to your creator, but horizontally to the people around you. And outside of that connection, you can't be fully alive and fully human. Another thing I I think sometimes we we bring into marriage as bad idea baggage is that we have one connection vertically and all we're ever going to fully need if we find the right person is one connection horizontally. You can't put that on one other person Nobody can be everything to you. And if you decide, right, that one person is going to meet all of your needs, you're going to mess up your focus because you're going to be frustrated with what they are not rather than fascinated by what they are. Vertically, we have a savior. Horizontally, the best we get is a spouse. And a spouse cannot be a savior. 
We need people, plural. And part of the beauty of that is you don't have to be married to be whole. If you have people in your life filling that horizontal need for relationship, you can be whole and holy without being married. But you can't ever step into the fullness of the future God wants to hand you outside of relationship with him and relationship, like deep doing life together relationship with the people around you. Marriage just happens to be the closest connection we can possibly have and the best picture of the intimacy we're created for in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. All right, so, so marriage. God says it's not good for man to be alone. I want to find a helper suitable for him. And what I want to do real quickly is dig into Genesis 2.18 and define two words for us this morning, helper and suitable. Because I think reading those words through the cultural lens that we have and through the difficulty of translating and losing something in the exchange from Hebrew to English has left a lot of people with a lot of bad idea baggage in their marriages. So first things first, this, this word helper. When we hear the word helper in English, it's almost impossible not to think of someone who's, who's kind of secondary or subsidiary. Like when, when I hear it, I think of this onesie that we bought Jimmy when he was a, a little baby. It said, Daddy's Little Helper. It was this cute little thing, daddy's a little helper, only he's never been very helpful. It was aspirational at best. He's a teenager, he's still not helpful. And I'm going to be fair and have a confession moment. I could only name three of the four tools on there. I'm not very helpable. It was aspirational onesie for us both. But we think helper, we're thinking like, oh, cute, like daddy's little helper, like a little girl with an apron that says Grammy's little helper, and she's pouring in the flour. They make cookies, and it's precious. Here's the thing, though. This Hebrew word, azer, helper, in Genesis 2, it's not a cute word. It's a crucial word. It's used to describe Eve in Genesis 2.18, and then it's used again and again and again and again and again and again in the Old Testament to describe God. God is continually called our azer, our helper. Often in spaces where the writers are talking about strength that we would not be able to summon on our own. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who flung a hundred billion galaxies into space and spoke the world into being is not our little helper. It's not how God functions. He's our indispensable source of strength. And that's what the word azer means in Genesis 2. So what about this, this word suitable? I'll find a, a suitable helper for Adam, an azer connecto. Well, connecto is a locative adjective. It doesn't describe the qualities of something so much as it describes its place, its location. Literally, connecto means right in front of your face, like, like dead ahead, looking you in the eye. And this is so cool, you guys. God looks at every single thing that he made, and he's like, there is nothing out there that's going to be able to stand face to face with Adam and look him in the eye. It's not good for him to be alone, but all of the other things I dreamed up and created are in some ways inferior to him. And if he's going to have that need, that horizontal need met so he can live into the fullness of what I dreamed him up to be, he needs somebody who can stand face to face with him, look him in the eye, and be a counterpart, not just a companion. 
There's plenty of animals out there that could be a companion, but he needs a counterpart that can stand by his side as an equal and do life alongside him. That's what Azer Konegdo means in Genesis 2.18. And it's the first big idea I want us to see this morning about what marriage is. Marriage is a source of strength. It's designed to be this irreplaceable source of strength that we could not find anywhere else. It's a source of strength. And then in Genesis 2, 19, the, the poem continues, that the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper, Azer Konegdo, was found. I've always thought this process was super hilarious, okay? Like in verse 18, God's like, nothing else is going to be a suitable helper for Adam. And then in verse 19, it's like, God made Adam go through everything. He brought, God's like, no animal's going to work for this, but you should look at all the animals ahead of time anyway, Right? And we know that God was going to create woman, but Adam didn't know that. And so then God just parades everything in front of him. And Adam's going through all the motions, just trying to figure it out. Like, I like that one. I'll call it dog. Oh, that's awful. Cat. Cat. And he's like, ooh, fun. This one I'm calling it monkey. Here's the question. If God knew, and God did, that none of those were going to be a suitable helper for Adam, why did he make Adam jump through all these hoops? Like, hey, do you think elephant? Would you like to hang out with elephant? You think that would make you less lonely? Like, I don't know. Elephant's got some good qualities, but something's missing. All right, how about skunk? No, worse. Way worse. Way, way worse. What's going on? Here's what I think is happening. God knew that sin was going to enter into the world and make marriage difficult. And he wanted to make sure Adam knew that he knew that he knew there is no alternative. There is nothing else that's going to provide you with that kind of love, that kind of security, and that kind of strength. It doesn't exist in this world. I know there are people sitting in here this morning who are in the middle of a difficult, rocky season in your marriage. It's frustrating and it's hard. And it feels like a fight every single day. And it's human and natural for our minds to start to wonder about alternatives. Like maybe this, maybe that, maybe her, maybe him, maybe, 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 maybe. And I want you, if you're in that space, to hear the voice of God calling out to you from Genesis 19 or 2.19. There is no suitable alternative. You're not going to find what you have anywhere else with anyone else. There is nothing on the planet like a deep, lifelong connection to one other soul. It cannot be found. And please hear me on this. That doesn't mean you need to stay in an abusive spot. There are people who break their marriage covenant and they're abusive and it isn't safe for you to stay, okay? But it does mean don't quit on a bad day. Don't quit on a bad week. Don't quit in a bad year. Sometimes it may feel like a fight, but it is a fight worth fighting. I promise you it is. I know that from my own life experience. One time when I was a teenager, my friends and I found a wheelchair by a dumpster near an old folks home. 
We're like, we want to ride this down a hill. And so we found a really steep street to ride it down. And my friend Jason sat in it, and I stood on the back. Like halfway down the hill, all I could think was, I really wish I wasn't on this wheelchair right now. A lot of times in the last 17 years, marriage has felt like that wheelchair to me. It looked fun. I thought, that's great. I'm going to do that. And then I thought, I don't want to be on this right now. I just wish I wouldn't have done this because it feels like we're going to crash. And then I'm going to shatter my collarbone on a curb or something, hypothetically. That is how the wheelchair story ended. But like, seriously, sometimes marriage looks great from the outside and then you're in it and you're like, I don't think I want to be in this anymore. I know I'm a pastor, but let me have a real, raw, vulnerable moment with you. Jenny and I have had some wheelchair crash moments. We've had wheelchair crash seasons. We're just like, ah, this is a huge mistake. And when they happen, my whole life feels like it's falling apart. I don't have the strength to go do any of the things I believe God has called me to do. But in the beautiful seasons, and we've had so, so many of those too, I feel like I could take on the world because it's a source of strength that is not available to me anywhere else. There is no alternative. And in Genesis 2, 21, Adam gets to experience it. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is such a beautiful passage that gives us a, a picture of the second good idea worth building a marriage on that I want us to see this morning is that marriage is a space of self-sacrifice. It's a source of strength and it's a space of self-sacrifice. That's literally how it starts. Adam has to sacrifice a part of himself for Eve to live, for Eve to even exist. And these days, even though we don't like physically do that at a marriage ceremony, like rip out a rib and hand it to your bride. <laughs> Davis and Lydia, if you even try to do that, I'm out on officiating your wedding. I don't like blood and I didn't go to doctor school. It's just like, we don't physically do it. But we would do a lot better in marriage. We'd have a whole lot stronger foundation if we understood from the outset, emotionally and relationally, that it is a space built on the idea of self-sacrifice. And the beauty of it is it's a necessary self-sacrifice. Eve couldn't have been if Adam didn't start with self-sacrifice. Like we have something to give that makes the other person more. That's why God didn't hand Adam a buddy who was just like him. He gave him a counterpart that fit where Adam had a design deficit. Adam's rib creating Eve symbolized the way in which she needed him. There was a fit there between man and woman, not just physically. I mean, the parts fit together. We know that that's true, but there's a fit there relationally and emotionally and spiritually as well. It's the brilliant design that God wove into the fabric of the universe that every single one of us has deficits And we need someone unlike us who has different deficits to fill those for us so that we can be all we were made to be. And the cool thing is it's only through self-sacrifice that we're able to do that. That's why God invented marriage. It's hard, though. It's difficult. But know this. Whatever struggles you may have in your marriage, the primary problem with them 
is your self-centeredness or your spouse's. That's the issue behind every other issue because self-centeredness in a space that's designed to run on self-sacrifice, like legitimately self-sacrifice is the oil that keeps the engine running without catching on fire and exploding. Self-centeredness in that place creates problems because it goes directly against the design. And we're going to talk a little bit more deeply about this in a few weeks. And so if your marriage ever has any issues at all, yours probably doesn't. It's probably better than mine. Yours, you never struggle. You never fight any of that stuff. But if maybe anyone else in here occasionally has a struggle in their marriage, you're going to want to be here in a few weeks because we're going to talk about how to use marriage as a mirror into your own selfishness, not a megaphone to shout about somebody else's. It's going to get real up in here. You should be here. So marriage, it's a source of strength and is a space of self-sacrifice. And this third foundational idea I want us to see this morning is found in verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. A marriage to become one. I think it's easy to hear that, especially if we're not married and think that if God says two equals one, then God must think one equals a half. I don't know what an algebra teacher would tell you about that equation, but I need you to know, especially if you're unmarried and here today, that is not what God is talking about at all. Like if you enter into marriage as a half, two halves will make hell not whole. I've seen it so, so, so many times. What God is talking about here is two whole people deciding that they're going to weave their future and their story into a single narrative together because marriage is a covenant commitment, all right? It's a source of strength. It's a space of self-sacrifice, and it is a covenant commitment. Marriage is not a declaration of present love. It is a promise of future commitment. That's what it's all about. That's what it's built on, and that's radically countercultural, right? We live in the middle of a society that says success in marriage is going to be based on chemistry, not covenant. About 15 years ago, there was a filmmaker named Dana Adam Shapiro, and he noticed that a whole bunch of his friends were getting divorced. And so he decided to make a movie about it. He interviewed 50 different couples and came to the conclusion that there is an intractable problem with monogamy. Specifically, his research said that like chemistry and passion are built on spontaneity, but marriage by its very design is built on duty. And so doing what you have to do again and again and again because you committed to do it actually kind of runs at a counter purpose to like passion and chemistry. And so Shapiro said marriage is kind of a useless, self-defeating institution. Now, in contrast to that, the great poet W.H. Auden once said any marriage, no matter how happy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. How could he say that? Like, why would he say that? Well, as Auden went on to brilliantly point out, marriage is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will. It is not the self-chasing ego. It is the self giving itself away for the sake of another. You guys, the daily grind of building a life together is a significantly more fascinating, courageous adventure than some fleeting fling that's here and gone. I promise you. 
Marriage is a covenant commitment. It's a promise to stand together with and for one another through the highs and the lows and the beauties and the storms of life. And it's incredible. Uh, It's built on a promise. It's not built on feelings. Feelings come and go. It's not even built on family, like having and producing kids. That's a byproduct, and, and it's fun, but marriage isn't primarily about producing babies. Rats and rabbits do that significantly better and more efficiently than we do, and they don't do marriage. They just do it. Do you ever wonder how many rabbits Noah took off the ark? Like, it was two on, but 40 days and 40 nights is a long time in a rabbit relationship. This is the kind of stuff I think about all the time when I read the Bible. I'm just like, I don't know. Marriage, marriage. Marriage is a covenant connection, a promise to be an invaluable source of strength, willing to sacrifice yourself for another for life because you've become one with them emotionally, relationally, and physically. Genesis 2.24 is the first reference to sex in the Bible, to becoming one. Because God created sex as a tool for deepening the connection and the meaning and the strength we're able to find in marriage. We live in a society that treats it like a toy. This is just to be used for fun whenever and however you want it, but it's a tool. And when we use it as a toy, there are some consequences to that that aren't very fun. A couple weeks ago, one of my twins walked in the house and he was bleeding. He'd apparently gone into the garage and found a saw and he was sawing a stick and then it slipped and cut him a little. It wasn't super bad. He told me it was to build a fort. I've known him for eight years. It was to build a weapon. It just is. (laughs) But either way, I had this total dad moment. I took the saw from him and I said, this is not a toy, right? Because that's what dads do. And then I realized that's a really powerful lesson. You use a tool as a toy and people get hurt. You use a tool as a toy and people get hurt. And sex is a tool. It's a fun tool. It's a very fun tool. If I had an extra set of arms, I'd give it four thumbs up. All right? (laughs) But it has a purpose, which makes it a tool, which is why God says it's designed only to be used inside of a marriage. That's the best and most beautiful way. I want to reiterate something I said last week. If that's not your story, if you've messed it up, if you have some brokenness in the area of of sex and sexuality. There is no story beyond redeeming and you are not a second-class citizen or a second-class Christian and you're not hopelessly broken. Every single one of us has made massive mistakes. We're all desperately coming to the cross. So if you have guilt and shame, lay it at the foot of the cross and leave it there. That's the whole thing we do here. But I want you to know, chasing Marriage, chasing relationships, chasing love, God's way. Leaves us with a whole lot less baggage, a lot less dents and cracks in the foundation that need to be repaired. It's the more beautiful way. In everything, God's way is the more beautiful way. Marriage is a source of strength, a space of self-sacrifice, and a covenant connection. That's why God invented it. It's a gift he gives us because he didn't think it was good for us to be alone. And I love that the beauty of it is expressed immediately upon its creation. Like God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes out the rib and he, he creates Eve. And then he, he shows her to Adam and 
the first thing Adam does is poetry. Like, she's poetry in motion, and he's blown away. He says, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, and then he names her. And the Hebrew word for man is ish. And Adam says, I am ish. She is isha. I am man. She is, whoa, man. That's in the Bible. That's what he said. It's how he named her. A verse later, it says she was naked. So it's not surprising that he was like, whoa, man. But this is, this is what he does. He sees her and immediately he starts waxing poetic because he realizes he's been gifted a source of strength and self-sacrifice and covenant connection that makes him more than he ever could have been alone. And that's what marriage is all about. That's why God invented it and invested in it. And at Revision, we just want to do the same thing. We want to invest in your marriage. I promise you, no matter where your marriage is at today, whether it's a year or five years or 10 years away from even happening and you're excited about it, whether it's going great or it's struggling or it's stalled out, your marriage matters to God. And we're here to walk alongside you because all of us need all of us to walk alongside all of us in everything. We're not built to do this thing alone. Thank God he gave us each other. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for this brilliant way in which you created us to relate to you vertically and to one another horizontally. Even though it's frustrating and inconvenient and all of us, especially in this culture, want to be self-sufficient, thank you for designing us with a deficit that requires us to give ourselves away and to receive of someone else so that we can be more, so that we can be full, so that we can be alive and whole Thank you for the gift of one another. Thank you for the gift of marriage, this source of strength, this covenant connection, this self-sacrificial relationship where we're able to give and receive and be more. And thank you for the gift of friendship. Thank you for the gift of love. Thank you for creating us for one another. Amen.